Ezra. As we've talked about this, brief background, then we'll pray and get into the text. But So just to be remember that the nation of Judah is undergoing restoration. So remember that because if you were here through First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles, we saw that virtually all the kings, all the kings in Israel were evil, and most and many of the kings, about I would say most of the kings in Judah were evil, and they kept worshiping false idols, and God finally brought righteous judgment. They were in Babylon for 70 years of captivity. When we come to Ezra, at the beginning of the book, we saw a, a, a man who brought back um, a man by the name of Zerubbabel, who brought back about 50,000 people that the King Cyrus allowed to come back to Jerusalem because when they were taken captive, Jerusalem was, was taken down to rubble. The temple was destroyed. So they come back to this place. It's been destroyed. Remember that when they got back, the young men were excited because they had never been there. And the older men who had been there before were heartbroken because they saw the destruction. And so we saw as a rubble bell from chapter 1 through chapter 6, and then picking up in chapter 7 and moving forward, we now move to Ezra. Now, Ezra is a priest. He's also a scribe. Ezra wrote First and Second Chronicles, First and Second Kings, Ezra, and Esther, and most people believe Nehemiah as well. So this guy was a prolific writer. He was a man of God who stood by the word of God. And while Zerubbabel came back to help rebuild Jerusalem, 60 years has gone by when Ezra comes, the temple's been rebuilt, the city's been rebuilt, and Ezra is coming to help. He brings a smaller crowd. If you were here last week, it's only it's about 1,500 men and then the, their wives and children, so probably five or 6,000 people. They made that four-month journey for 900 miles. They get to Jerusalem. They were given a great gift by Artaxerxes, who's the king. He wanted to just cover his bases. He just believed in all gods, and he thought, well, that god might be God, so let's just give him a bunch of money, and let's allow them to go back. And then hopefully, uh, I got all the gods covered. We know that's not how that works, right? But they brought him back, and, they, and 12 men were each given a large sum, and they literally came back with the equivalent of millions of dollars to help continue the rebuild of, Jer of Jerusalem. And when they got back, they worshiped the Lord, and they had sacrifices together. And Ezra had never been there because, again, by this point, it's 130 years since they had been taken captive. So it's his first time there. He's rejoicing in the Lord. Ezra thinks he's just there to support what's going on. But Ezra's real calling is going to start in the chapter tonight. He's actually coming back to help get them right spiritually. Zerubbabel came back to do the physical building of the temple. Ezra's coming back. And when he comes back, we're going to see it tonight. He's going to mourn and grieve when he sees the spiritual state of the people in Jerusalem, including the priests and the Levites. So let's pray and we'll dig into the text. Heavenly Father, we ask now as we go to your word that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher. And Lord, I pray for all of us, if we have grown cold at all, if we become lukewarm in our walk, Lord, may you draw us back into yourself. And Lord, I thank you for your word that it is so instructive into our own lives today. It has clear application to who we are as believers. So give us ears to hear what your Spirit would say to us tonight. In Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said... Amen. So if you have your outline, grab it. And I want you to notice something about these outlines. They're not, 
They're not observational or interpretational outlines. And when you do inductive Bible study, it's what does it say, observation? What does it mean, interpretation? How does it apply to your life? So I always make them applicational so you can take this home with you, okay? And it has an application to your life. And so we're going to see in tonight's text how Ezra responds when he finds out how far away from the Lord the people have gotten. These people that are living in the land of promise have compromised. They've, uh, they're, we're going to see that they're intermarrying with unbelievers. They got caught up in the same stuff that got them taken away to, to captivity in Babylon. You know, it's amazing in the Bible, in the book of Judges, you have, you have this cycle seven times where they're walking with the Lord, the judge or the prophet, if you will, he was the one that taught them the truth. When he would die, they would walk away from the Lord. Their lives would fall apart. They'd start worshiping false gods. God would bring righteous judgment. They'd cry out to God. He'd bring a new judge. They'd repent. The judge would die. They'd start go do the same thing. And you read through it and you think, what a bunch of knuckleheads. But the reality is, it sounds like our lives sometimes. Can I get an amen to that? Where, we, where there's that kind of that thing where we're walking with the Lord and our walk is really strong. And hopefully it stays strong all the time. But for most people, that's unfortunately not the case, where you're doing really well, and then something happens in life, and before you know it, your walk's not as strong as it used to be. You get so caught up at work, you can't be in fellowship. Your devotionals kind of go away. You may get caught up in an old sin you used to struggle with, and then you come to the end of yourself. You cry out to the Lord. He restores you. You're back in a strong walk with Him for a period of time, and then you fall again. Well, that's exactly what's happening with these people in Jerusalem. They're actually doing the very same things that got their ancestors drug off into captivity. So I've titled the message, When Your Walk with the Lord Grows Cold. What are some of the things, and this is one of the things I talk to people about a lot. I get a lot of phone calls during the week. Call me anytime. You all have my cell phone number. As as you know, I quit my full-time job after 35 years, so I'm available and if you call me, the only reason I won't answer is if I'm on the phone with somebody else. So just call me. And, and I talk to a lot of people. I counsel a lot of people. A lot of people call from the radio and other places. And there's this constant theme of my walk isn't where it should be. There's a constant, you know, I get caught up in things. And yeah, I love the Lord, but somehow I find myself so far away. So here's some kind of things we'll see in tonight's text that are pictures of what takes place when you're, when you're Walk with the Lord starts to grow cold. Number one, you're led more by the culture that surrounds you than the Word of God and His commands. We start to fall into a trap. Even as believers, we can fall into the trap, and and we get desensitized to sin. That's another point that's coming up. But what happens is, before you know it, we look at how other Christians live, and even the culture within the church, and we'll look at the culture within the church And we'll look at the lukewarm people in the church, and we'll fall into the trap of thinking, if they do it, I guess it must be okay for me. Guys, our example is not anyone else in this building, ultimately. It's Jesus Christ always. Amen? Now, we should all live in such a way that we will be a Christ-like example to others, but if you follow men, they will fail you. If you follow the Lord, He is always faithful. What happens when you start to grow cold is you're more concerned with your reputation before men than your character before God. And you seek worldly power, pleasure, and position over right standing and faithfulness to Almighty God. And again, this will happen in subtle ways. All of a sudden, you get a promotion at work, and now you're working 80 hours a week, and now you don't have time for fellowship, and now your devotions go away. And before you know it, you're more caught up in your goals at work than you are your walk with God. And again, you should 
We need to learn to balance that. Yeah, we should be the best worker in the building, but our relationship with the Lord comes above everything else. Number two, you become desensitized to sin. And we see that we've all been desensitized, certainly over time. I remember, I use this as an example all the time. I remember the first time I heard about a drive-by shooting. And I couldn't believe that, what? Somebody goes by and they shot into a house blindly and killed them. What in the world? I remember the first time I heard about a school shooting. And now we hear about them all the time, right? And what happens is the more that we experience something, the less shocked we are by it. And sin has a way we become desensitized to it. We cease to be appalled by it and heartbroken or astonished by it. It's just like, well, that's the world. That's the world we live in. And we're going to see that Ezra is not desensitized to sin. And when he sees what's going on, he is going to mourn. And he is going to cry out to God. His heart's going to be broken. He is going to be grieved by the sins of others. Now, I have no problem being grieved by my own sin. But I think all of us, we need to come to a place when others are struggling that we're grieved by sin. Amen? We should be grieved by what's taking place in our country. You become desensitized to sin, you cease to mourn over your own sin, and you act as if sin is no big deal. Well, I sin every day, it's not a big deal, it doesn't matter. Guys, we need to love God and hate sin, amen? Amen. Number three, your prayer life and intimate fellowship with God is all but non-existent. You're so busy and worldly focused to humbly come before the Lord with a heart of confession and repentance after you sin. A mark of spiritual maturity is seen in the distance and time between when you sin and when you repent. And the closer you are to the Lord, the shorter amount of time that that is. And, and you know what? If sometimes people they haven't, they haven't repented in months. I don't know how you survive that way. And for me, you know, it goes, it goes from days to hours to minutes to seconds. And I know for me, I'm convicted. And the word's not even out of my mouth yet. And I'm throwing the Holy Spirit head slap, Right? I feel the conviction, and I'm brought to a place of repentance almost immediately. And my prayer is I will never grow past that, amen? That we should never just act like sin's no big deal. And so when your walk of the Lord grows cold, your prayer life and your intimate fellowship with God is all but non-existent. Are you spending time with the Lord? Is that a priority? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. And if we're not in the Word of God, we're not going to know the author very well, amen? Number four. You lose sight of the amazing grace of God and His mercy in the midst of consequences of your past sin. How the Lord remained faithful even when you were faithless. You know what's amazing about our God? He knows you best and He loves you most. He knows what a wicked, vile sinner you are, just like me. He knows every wicked, vile thing you've ever thought or done, stuff that you've told no one. God knows it all. He knows all the stuff you're going to do in the future, and He still loves you. That's our God. Amen? Now, we don't take that love for granted, and we don't take His grace for granted. Just because He's gracious, grace is not freedom to sin, it's, it's freedom from sin, amen? But we're going to see in tonight's text how easily you can just lose sight of His grace and His mercy and get caught up, and, and again, in, the, in His faithfulness during our past sinful life. He still watched over us. He's going to still watch over them even when they're away from the Lord. Even when they're away from him, because they're still his kids and he's going to draw them home. And again, it remains faithful even when we are faithless, and you can take a million steps away from God. It's only one step back. Point number five, 
You walk in open rebellion against what the Word of God clearly commands, and then you're surprised by the consequences of your sin. You walk in open rebellion against God. You make a conscious decision you're going to do it. Satan whispers in your ear, God will forgive you. You can go ahead and do it. And then you go ahead and do it. You pray and ask God to forgive you. He does forgive you if you're truly repentant, but the consequences remain. Amen? And I get phone calls all the time. I don't know why, I don't know why my marriage is falling apart. You know, I, I don't understand why this is happening. And I'm like, how's your walk with the Lord? Are you guys pray together? Well, no. Are you guys in the Word together? Well, no. I haven't seen you in church in six months. You in fellowship anywhere? Well, no. So God's not a priority in your house? Well, no. How much time you guys spend together? Well, not very much. Well, duh. Your sin has consequences, amen? And you're the spiritual leader in your house. Well, she doesn't want to come. That doesn't keep you from coming. You're a grown man. Get in the car and drive down to church. The reality is we need to be in fellowship. And what happens is that we then get upset that the consequences of our choices are all around us. And the reality is that when we're obedient, God is glorified and we get blessed. And when we're disobedient, sin has consequences. Amen? And then finally, you cease to be humble, broken, and desperate before God. You make excuses for your sinful behavior when true repentance comes humbly before God without excuse. Guys, when, when, when you're truly repentant, you don't make excuses for your sin. Well, yeah, I did it, but no, 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 no. That's it. You did it. Repent. Amen? Well, it was, it was the woman thou gavest me, right, Adam? You know that mentality. <laughs> Pointing at somebody else. It's his fault. It's her fault. It's my mean boss. If he didn't talk that way to me, I wouldn't have to cuss him out. No, well, that's on you. And we need to be faithful and recognize again that we need to be humble, broken, and desperate always. We need to keep short accounts with God. Amen? So let's begin there looking at when you walk with the Lord, when your walk with the Lord uh, grows cold, you're led more by the culture that surrounds you than the word of God and his commands. Look at verse 1. I'm going to read verse 36 of the previous chapter first, just to show how that ended in chapter 8. So they delivered the king's orders to the king's satraps, the governors in the region, beyond the river. So they gave support to the people in the house of God. So when they came, they literally had million, what would be millions of dollars in today's money that was given to support Jerusalem and the temple. And again, they've just had a wonderful time of worship. They've just had a wonderful time of sacrifice unto the Lord. The temple's operating. Ezra, no doubt, is excited. He's never seen the temple before. He lived in a pagan land of Babylon his whole life. He's a man of God, and now he's with God's people in the land of promise, and he's excited, and now the bubble's about to burst. Look at verse 1. When these things were done, the leaders came to me saying, now, this is Ezra writing, and he said, so they're celebrating, they're worshiping, they're excited about being with God's people, they're around other believers, they're in the land of promise, and then the leaders pull Ezra aside, hey bro, we got to talk to you, come here. And so the leaders pull him aside, and this is what they say, the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with respect to the abominations of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Jebusites and the Ammonites and the Moabites and the Egyptians and the Amorites. So the people of Israel, they have not separated themselves from the pagan communities that surround them. As believers, we are called to minister to the world, but have no fellowship with it. And again, of course, 
We don't go up on, on a hill somewhere and chant and wait till the Lord comes back. That's not what we're called to do. Don't build a bunker and go hide out and protect yourself from the world until the rapture takes place. If you're going to do that, just go home now. Go to heaven now. The reality is that we're called to be salt and light, but what we're not called to do is be like the world. We're called to be different than the world. We should be so radically different from the world that people recognize it. And so they were to be different than the world, but sadly, it even says there, notice what they're in trouble for. They've joined the, they have not separated themselves with respect to the abominations, the ungodly things that the world was doing, because they got desensitized to it, because they were around it, all of a sudden, they became a part of it. They were doing the things that the world does. Now, a lot of churches, you could, if, you, if you went to church there, I've, I've had uh, one of my sons is up in, near Sacramento, and he's been to like a dozen churches, and he's getting frustrated trying to find a good church. And, he, and he's a pastor's kid, so he knows what should be happening, and he knows the Lord. And he's like, Dad, I felt like I, felt like I went to a, a Vegas show or something. Like you go in there and it's entertaining and he goes, and the guy talked for like seven minutes and, and the, you know, and it, it was text out of context and the guy's just a con. And, and, you know, and the reality is there's a lot of churches where we, we want to feed the world what the world wants. So I get these things all the time. When you're a pastor of a church, you get emails almost every day. I get them, how to grow your church, you know, from 200 to 2000 in the next six months, Right. And, they, and they're all, all they've been around forever. And what they tell you to do is you get a survey of all the people in the neighborhoods around you and ask them what they want in a church and then give them that. So if they want Bozo the Clown, you got Bozo. You want a petting zoo? We got a petting zoo, right? If you, whatever you want, you want, you want a zip line to church? We'll have a zip line. You want the service to be 30 minutes so you can get home time for football? We'll do that for you. We'll do whatever you want. Guys, that's not church. That's catering to the fleshliness of man. Amen? And so that's what's happening to, to the leaders amongst the children of Israel They've been hanging around the Amorites and the Moabites, all the Enies and the Ites, right? And they're becoming like the pagan idolaters that they just left behind in Babylon. And they've come back to the land of promise. By the way, these were the people in the land of Canaan that were supposed to have been wiped out by the Jews when they came in to the land of promise. Instead of wiping them out, they're hanging out with them. And we're going to see it's going to get even worse. It wasn't just the people, but the priests and the Levites, the spiritual leaders who were to teach the word and be an example, were also caught up in the compromise. I don't want to have anybody teach me anything if they're not living it themselves. Amen? That's called a hypocrite, right? It's a, a mask wear. It doesn't mean the people that teach are perfect, but they should be living that life. Amen? It shouldn't be foreign to them. And so the guys who are leaders are compromising. So what do you think everyone else is doing, especially when they watch their ungodly examples? So what is this abomination? What is this thing that they are doing? Look at verse 2. For they have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons, so that the holy seed is mixed with the people of those lands. Indeed, the hand of the leaders and the rulers has been foremost in this trespass. What they're saying is no one's more guilty than the spiritual leaders of compromise. Now, in those days, the way that you built up your kingdom if you were a king is you would intermarry with your enemies, one of your enemy's daughters. 
or, you know, or vice versa. You give your, a foreign king your daughter. And what that was supposed to do was bring these two enemies together, make them a family, and then that would make both their kingdoms greater, make it into a greater kingdom. So there was this compromise that took place all the time. Well, the priests and the Levites don't have kingdoms. They serve in the kingdom. But it's really easy to see, well, they're doing it to grow their kingdom. I'm just going to do it too. Well, yeah, but uh, you know, the, we don't have as many because uh, the Jews would be outnumbered by all these other tribes, and maybe they found someone more attractive in the other tribe. And so what do they do? They intermarry. Now we know, and I'll get to the verse in a little while, it says in Deuteronomy, they're commanded not to do that. And that verse had already been written. You are not to marry and intermarry with unbelievers. It even tells them, because she will draw you away from the true and living God to follow after her God. And you know, we saw that. Ahab and Jezebel. Amen. Where did Baal worship come from? Jezebel brought it to Israel because Ahab married Jezebel, and that was the God from her land. And the, and the prophet Baal and all the Baal worship that ran rampant was because this man married an ungodly woman. Can I tell you right now, the most important decision you will make in your life outside of giving your life to Jesus Christ is the person that you marry. Amen? And you do not want to settle for less than God's highest. Often when I'm doing pre-marriage counseling, it's like the fourth, I say, here's what your vows mean. You're going to stand there and look at this person and say, you're the person God created for me. I'm going to stand with you. And no matter what you do for the rest of my life, I am never going to leave. I'm committed to you for a lifetime. If you're the husband, I'm going to lead you, love you, and serve you, and lay down my life for you, and provide for you. And the wife says, I'm going to be your helpmate. And even if you become a jerk, I'm going to stay. Amen? That's what the vow is. The vow is that I'll give it a shot. Let's see how this works out. And if you're not the person I, I want, I'll go find another one. As believers, we're making vows before Almighty God. They're making vows and pledging themselves to pagan idol worshipers. And then what does that do? It causes them to compromise. And especially a guy who finds a girl attractive, he'll tell her anything, ladies. Watch out for those knuckleheads. Oh, sure. I, yeah, I can believe in Baal. No problem. And that's what will happen there's so much compromise. You know, God had warned his people, it's in Deuteronomy 7, nor shall you marry with them. You shall not give your daughter to their son, nor take their daughter for your son, for they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. And the anger of the Lord will be aroused against you and destroy you suddenly. That's in the Bible. So let's read that verse. Okay, the anger of the Lord will be aroused against you and destroy you suddenly. Now go pick out an unsaved woman and see how that works out. And then when it's a disaster, the pastor takes you to the verse and says, can you read that back to me? What does that say? It's not God's fault, it's your fault. Amen? This is one of the not-so-obvious reasons why the people had been in captivity. They had gone after other gods. It's because they intermarried with ungodly uh, spouses and from, from pagan lands that put them in captivity. Now they've come home from captivity and they're doing it again. It's like the guy that goes to jail for 20 years for drunk driving and the day he gets out, he gets drunk and starts driving his car. Some people are never going to learn. They have to go back to jail again. And guess what? They're living in open rebellion against Almighty God. And again, it says at the end of verse 2 there, and the rulers have been foremost in this trespass. No one's more guilty then the priests and the Levites, the ones who are, sent, who are meant to set a godly example. People have differing perspectives on 
Just an obvious one is drinking alcohol. So none of our pastors drink alcohol. And you can drink alcohol as a Christian if you want. That's between you and the Lord. Drunkenness is a sin. But you can't be a pastor of this church if you're going to drink alcohol. Here's why. Because we are called to be an example, and we don't want to stumble anybody. Amen? If you, came to, if you saw me having a beer with dinner, and I could say, oh, I'm in grace, man. I can have a beer. It might stumble other people who struggle with alcohol. Amen? Paul said, if my eating meat's going to stumble you, I won't eat meat. So we need to be an example. And instead, these guys are an ungodly example. No doubt some of the young men are like, dude, the priest got married to one of those, you know, hot Egyptian babes, I'm going to get me one of them. You know what I mean? And they go, and they're just going to follow that footpath. And so here's, here's Ezra. He was so excited to come back. He got to see the temple for the first time. He's rejoicing in the Lord. And they come and tell him, bro, the priests and Levites do, they're marrying pagan idol worshipers, man. They're, getting, they're hooking up with these women, these foreign women. And it's the leaders that are the worst ones of all of them. And we're going to see how he responds just in case you go, well, that's in the Old Testament about marriage. Well, let me just read this to you, 2 Corinthians. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? And what accord has Christ with Belial? Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell with them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people." Therefore, come out from among them and be separate. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord God Almighty. This doesn't mean we can't have friendships with unbelievers. Again, we minister to the world but have no fellowship with it. My coworkers are my, were my mission field. Now I work out at a gym. That's my mission field. We know we can interact with the world. We're called to do that, but we're called to minister to them, not fellowship with them and follow them in their ungodly relationship. You know, a strong, close, binding relationship like marriage, God wants two people to be of the same mind, worshiping the same God. Amos 3.3 says, can two walk together unless they are agreed? The world likes to use the word tolerance. We should be more tolerant. Well, here's what we don't want to do. We don't affirm sin and we don't hate the sinner. Can I get an amen to that? They think you got to be one or the other with homosexuality or transgenderism or, or adult, whatever you want to call you, Well, you either have to affirm them or you hate them. We do neither. We don't affirm, we don't hate, we love them, but we're not going to affirm. Just like I don't want you to affirm the sin in my life. Can I get an amen to that? And so Ezra takes this, how's Ezra going to respond? How's this man of God who no doubt had been looking forward maybe for decades to come, come to the land of promise? He's finally there. He's been rejoicing. Look at point number two. You become desensitized to sin. You know what makes you realize you become desensitized to sin when you find somebody, find out, you hang out with somebody who hasn't been? When somebody who, who sees it and is shocked and appalled by it, you're thinking, man, I should be like that. Well, look at verse 3. It says, So when he heard, I heard this thing, I tore my garment and my robe and plucked out some of the hair of my head. I would probably steer clear of that. I don't have very many left. <laughs> and beard and sat down astonished. The momentary rejoicing at his revival, the delivery of the wealth, the sacrifices, the worship, all the hopes and all the excitement quickly turns into heartbreak. You can almost feel this man of God 
this priest and teacher of God's word, how he felt when he heard that not only the people, but the spiritual leaders of Jerusalem, the priests and the Levites, were com committing the same sin and ungodly compromise that led to their exile in Babylon in the first place. So how does he respond? He tore his clothes. He grieved over sin. In those days, when they, they would rent their clothes, they would rip their clothes as a sign of their grief. He was grieving. Now, he wasn't sinning, but his heart broke to see that his people were sinning. To see the people that are supposed to follow God are not following God. That the ones that are supposed to be leading other people into a relationship with the Lord are actually drawing them away. It wasn't Ezra's sin, yet he was grieved. He wasn't the one who had sinned, yet notice how he'll use the pronouns later. He's going to talk about their sin. He's going to say, we have sinned against God. And even though we may not be personally for our, uh, accountable for our whole, na whole nation, we can say of our nation that we have sinned against God. Amen? That we as a nation have walked away from the Lord. The Lord, we need to repent. Lord, we need to cry out to you for love and grace and mercy. Lord, please, Lord, we need to ask you for forgiveness. And that's going to be the heart of Ezra, because for him, these are his people. And we have fallen into sin. We are not where we should be with the Lord. It shows how much Ezra loves these people and how heartbroken he is over their sin. The Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians 13, do not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoice in the truth. When you see someone caught in sin, how do you respond? As believers, we should not be you know, using prayer requests as a way to gossip. Oh, did you hear about what happened to Pastor Dave? Let me just tell you what he did. So that's just a prayer request. Let me just share with you, right? And we turn you know, prayer requests into gossip, and we don't want to do that. And it should break our hearts when other people are in sin, amen? And we should be burdened for them and pray for them, and that's going to be Ezra's heart. Now, the word astonished there in Hebrew means appalled or stupefied. In, in, the, in the English translation from the Hebrew, it means to make pale. It literally means like the color came out of his face. He was so heartbroken and astonished, it just broke his heart. He was appalled. He was stupefied. He couldn't even, it didn't even make sense to him. See, for him, he had been living a holy life. He was a sinner like the rest of us, but he had lived a life honoring unto the Lord. And when he saw people professing the Lord professing to know the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, living such an ungodly life that it just, he did, it just didn't track. It didn't make sense. Why would anyone do that? Do they really know the true and living God? He was shocked and heartbroken by the sins of God's people. And sadly, far too many Christians today have become desensitized to sin. Sin is so common, even amongst believers, that we cease to be heartbroken over it comparing our behavior to the behavior of the world instead of the standard of God's word. Well, compared to the world, I'm pretty good. Well, I hope so. But guys, we don't compare ourselves to the world. We compare ourselves to Christ. Now how are we doing? We should be grieved by our sin. And first and foremost, we should be grieved by sin. And first and foremost, by our own sin. The sin I hate the most is mine. Amen? I'm grieved by the sin in my life. And when it happens, it grips me. I'll give you an example of, of, of me sending not long, just recently. My wife and I were talking. There's somebody that's been saying bad things about my family, and, and it's kind of, you know, and, and I did, I've just bit my lip for a long time. And finally it came up, and more things came up, and I was literally washing dishes, and I just 
said out loud, that guy's a punk. That's what I said. That guy's a punk. Like, I've just been biting my tongue for a year and a half. That guy's a punk. And my wife's like, oh, okay, Pastor Dave. (laughs) And as soon as I said it, I was grieved. I'm like, you know what? I shouldn't talk like that. And, And I asked God to forgive me. And I asked my wife to forgive me. But the point is, as believers, when we sin, there should be immediate conviction. Amen? And, and the closer we are to the Lord, the more we're going to hate their, their, their sin in their own life. And, and you know, I've, I've had some friends who said, well, that guy is kind of a punk. No, don't, don't, feed my, don't feed my ungodly behavior. Don't look like that's okay. I know what's going on. He is a kind of a punk. But we don't want to do that, right? And that's what the world will do. Man, I'll drive over to his house with you. Let's go knock him out in Jesus' name, right? But the reality is when we sin, there should be a brokenness. And, and the sin that should grieve us the most is our own. Amen? But here's Ezra, and he sees the sin of others. He's heartbroken. How have we gotten so far away from God? And sometimes we'll, we'll look at what's going on in churches around us or other believers and think, how in the world is that okay? I don't understand that. And so he's astonished. And again, he was grieved by it. The Bible, you know, a good, a good term is love God and hate sin. Amen? Love God and hate sin. God's word should be the foundation for every aspect of our lives, and marriage should be right up there near the top of the list. Amen? We don't want to settle for less than God's highest. The foundation with all the confusing moral issues happening in our world today, it's easy to get upside down on what's right and wrong. In our nation, we've decided morality is something we vote on. I don't care if everyone in the country votes that something's okay. Guys, if it was a sin 2,000 years ago, it's a sin today. And it doesn't matter what the world says is okay. Is there a law against adultery? What's the answer? No. It's not against the law to be an adulterer. Is it sin? What's the answer? See, guys, the law doesn't determine what's right and wrong. The Word of God determines what is right and what is wrong. And they we get far too much about what other people think. We tremble at being, being, having, not being faithful or not being loved by man. What should be, we should only tremble about being faithful to God. Amen. Who cares what men think? Amen. Ultimately. It says this in Isaiah. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house that you built me? And where is my place of rest? For all those, these things my hands have made and all those things exist, says the Lord but to the one on whom I look, on him who is poor of a contrite spirit and who trembles at my word. The word of God should strike the fear of God in us. Amen? When we read it, it's not just studying a a, a textbook. It's spending intimate time with the Creator. And when He speaks to us, it ought to change the way that we live and change the way that we think. And we ought to approach the word of God with reverence and read it in the fear of God of the Lord. May the word of God be our, again, our our standard, our foundation that we walk on. The wise man builds his house upon the rock, and the rock is Jesus, but the rock is also his word, amen, because he is the word. If we build our life upon the sand, on the things of the world, the rain's going to come, and it's all going to come crashing down. So point number two, when you walk with the Lord grows cold, you, you become desensitized to sin. Number three, your prayer life and intimate fellowship with God is all but non-existent. Now, how is this man going to respond? He's astonished. He's heartbroken. He can't believe what he's heard. 
Then it says there in verse 4, that everyone who trembled at the words of God of Israel assembled to me because of the transgressions of those who had been carried away captive. And I said, astonished until the evening sacrifice. When he heard what he heard, he went and he sat down and he did not move until that night. He was so grieved that he couldn't even move. He was in a place of mourning before God. And as believers, we should mourn over our sin. Amen? In Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And people read that and go, well, wait a minute. Oh, how happy are those who mourn? Well, certainly it can apply to all types of mourning, but the real application is those who mourn over their sin. And what's interesting, when we mourn over our sin... When we repent over our sin, we get a down payment on heaven in the person of the Holy Spirit. Those who mourn will be comforted. Who's the comforter? The Holy Spirit. Amen? And so when we mourn, we are comforted by God. And when we mourn over our sin, the Holy Spirit comforts us as we repent and get right with the Lord. And that's the way we ought to respond to our sinful behavior. So he hears it. He's astonished. He's heartbroken. He rents his clothes And until the evening sacrifice, he doesn't even move. He's just mourning because he hears about the sins of his people. And as believers, that's how we ought to look at sin. Not act like it's no big deal. It's not that big of a thing. No, it is a big deal. You know how big a deal it is? This is how big a deal it is. Amen? Jesus had to go to the cross because it's such a big deal. Point number three, your prayer. Look at verse five. Then it says there, at the evening sacrifice which, by the way, that took place at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, and it was also the hour of prayer. So the evening sacrifice was at 3 o'clock, and then it was the hour of prayer. So from the morning when he heard about what was happening with the leaders, and he grieved all morning, so he mourned all morning, and then it says this, At the evening service I arose from my fasting, having torn my garment and my robe, and I fell on my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God. At the evening service, he arose from his fasting. Ezra knew there was a time to mourn. He mourned a long time. He mourned all day. But Ezra also knew there was a time to pray. Guys, there's a time for us to mourn over our sin, but mourning isn't enough. When we mourn over it and we're gripped by it, what's the next thing we do? We need to repent from it. Amen? We need to come to a place of prayer. And I love how it shows the, the position he was in when he, prayer, when he prayed. It says, I fell on my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord God. And now, in the Old Testament, this is a common position that people would pray. And literally, it would get like he got down on his knees and he would hold his hands up to heaven and raise his hands to heaven and pray. And you know what? Throughout Scripture, we see people getting on their knees. I don't believe there's a position that is more spiritual than others, but what I would say is get in whatever position you need to get in to make the focus fully on Him and keep you undistracted by anything else. Amen? And so for me, I I lay flat on my face uh, often, especially when something heavy is going on and I'm really crying out to the Lord. I will lay on the carpet in my bedroom face down to the ground, and I just will cry out to God because I don't want to be distracted by anything else. And for me, that's full surrender. And I don't think, and we see that uh, throughout Scripture, a lot of people, again, I'll just read a few, 
get on their knees. We see that Solomon prayed on his knees. The psalmist called us to kneel before God, Lord our God, our maker. Daniel prayed on his knees. People presented themselves to Jesus in a kneeling posture. Stephen prayed on his knees. Peter prayed on his knees. Paul prayed on his knees. The early Christians prayed on their knees in Acts chapter 2. And most importantly, Jesus prayed on his knees. And I think, again, I don't think the, I think we can pray in our car. You know, the veil's been torn. We can pray anywhere and any time, but I do think there should be a time where we go somewhere, the prayer closet or anything where we're not going to be distracted and we can get into a position where our focus is going to be completely and totally on the Lord. We all know we have some prayer that's a lot more surface than other prayer. Can I get an amen to that? Where we just pray it and, and you know, if somebody comes to ask me to pray, I always pray for them right then. Hey, Pastor Dave, can you pray for me this week? What is, uh, let me pray for you right now, because I might forget. Anybody ever, anybody ever say they'll pray for somebody and forget? Hands on up, you're probably a liar. But here's the reality. And you know when you remember sometimes? When you see them a week later, they're walking towards you, and you realize, I forgot to pray for him. So you pray for them while you're walking toward them. So when they get you and go, been praying for you, bro. Last eight seconds, but I've been praying for you. But the reality is you can forget, and so it's important that we take time to pray. It's important that we set aside time to be with the Lord at time when we're going to not be distracted. There is a time to mourn. In this case, he is mourning over the sin of his people and the consequences that their sin may bring. And there is a time to pray, to come humbly before the Lord, to openly confess and cry out to him. When Ezra prayed, he prayed alone. Yet because he stood before an assembly of the people of God, there was a sense that he was leading everyone else in prayer. He led by example. Everybody else, all these people had been living these ungodly lifestyles, and people were just rolling with it. And there were a few leaders that said something about it. But when they see him crying out to God because of what's taking place, do you think it caused other people to stop and take notice? Now, when we pray, we should never pray to draw attention to ourselves. Amen? So we had a lady in our church in Santa Cruz that loved to dance during worship. And I mean, literally, you know, she was, she was dancing, okay? <laughs> she was doing the whole, you know, okay? And I, and she, and she, but she liked to do it in the front row, and I'd say, look, I know you love Jesus, and I know you, I know you don't want people, because when you start dancing, here's what happens. You have a bunch of people that are doing this, and now they're all watching you. And we're not going to worship you. We're worshiping Jesus. Amen? She goes, I get it. But you know what? Go stand in the back corner. You can dance all you want. You won't distract anybody. David danced before the Lord. Amen? I'm okay with it. But we don't want to draw the attention away from the Lord. Amen? And that's certainly not what Ezra's trying to do. He's just crying out to God. He's in a place he's heartbroken before the Lord, and he's seeking the Lord. Again, the Bible has enough people praying on their knees, but also enough people not praying on their knees to show it's not a requirement. But guys, I want to encourage us to be faithful. So Ezra spread out his hands to the Lord as well. Again, this is the most common posture of prayer in the Old Testament. Most today, what do we do? Here's our culture, and I'm not saying it's wrong. What do we do? Everybody will say, okay, we're going to pray. Everybody bow your heads and close your eyes, right? And a lot of times we'll fold our hands, we'll bow our heads, and we'll pray. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's a position of prayer. But it's, it's no, less a posi- no more position of prayer than this. If someone's looking up and crying out to God with their eyes up to heaven, they're praying. And you can pray with your eyes open. I I really encourage it when you're driving and praying. That's a good thing. (laughs) So the hands were spread toward heaven as a gesture of surrender. 
Like, Lord, I just surrender. I take all I have and I give it to you. I'm surrendering my life to you. And so notice what he says here in, the, in verse 6. He says, oh my God, I am too ashamed and humiliated to lift up my face to you. My God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads. Our guilt has grown up to the heaven. So his head does drop because he feels so overwhelmed and humiliated by what's taking place and he's worshiping God like this. And what he says is our sins are so great that my head, I can't even lift my head because of the weight of the sin that's upon us. This is a man who's crying out to God from his heart. This is a man who doesn't wor- isn't worried about what other people think. He's concerned about being faithful to God. The word says shamed and humiliated. Ashamed speaks first of uh, it's, there's, first two, there's two words. One speaks of the pain that accompanies the shame. He's, I'm ashamed, but then he also says, I'm humiliated. Like being humiliated is the pain that is equated with the shame. He's just, I'm so ashamed and I'm humiliated. And, and guys, he's not, the, did he commit these acts? What's the answer? It's the stuff he's praying for. Did he even, did he even participate? We know he's a sinner because we all are. But the things he's crying out for, he had nothing to do with it. But his heart is so broken to see other people who are supposed to believe or be believers doing it that he's interceding on God, with God on their behalf. When was the last time you interceded on behalf of somebody else whose walk is stumbling? Somebody else you see that's walking, their, their walk has grown cold and they're not walking in fellowship with the Lord. When was the last time you picked up the phone to call somebody like that and say, hey, bro, I've been praying for you. One of the things I pray for when I pray for divine appointments, I pray that the Lord would put people on my heart to call throughout the day. And I usually make three, four or five phone calls a day like that, where I'll be studying. I was studying tonight. I'm in the middle of the text. God put someone on my heart. I picked up the phone and called the person. They're like, wow, I can't believe you called. This is what I'm going through. Guys, let's be available and let's go love on some people in Jesus' name. And let's pray for people that have walked away from the Lord and pray that God would bring them home. Amen? And if we're not praying for them, maybe nobody else will. Ezra's a great example for all of us to follow. And again, he's people are drowning in their sin. We need to look up when we are, get our eyes back on Jesus, amen? Ezra had just arrived, his heart is broken, he sees their iniquity. Point number three, your prayer life and intimate fellowship with God are all but non-existent. See, he mourns over the sin, and then he's interceding with God because of the sin. He's praying, and, we don't, and then we see that the people that have joined him are the people that felt the same way. The people that had a reverence for the word of God joined him. The rest of them are off, you know, chasing after the things of the world, but those who were serious joined him. And what an appropriate thing for a midweek uh, crowd on a cold night. You could be doing a lot of other things tonight. It's a, it's a mark of kind of where your, your priorities are with the Lord. Uh, so then point number four there, you lose sight of the amazing grace of God and his mercy in the midst of the consequences of your past sins. And here's what he says. This is Ezra. Since the days of our fathers to this day, and this is his prayer, we've been very guilty And for our iniquities, we have our kings and our priests have been delivered into the hand of the kings of the lands and to the sword of to captivity, to plunder and to humiliation as it is this day. He's reminding them of what took place that took them off into captivity. He's saying, We've been very guilty, and our kings and our priests have been delivered into the hands of their kings. Why did God allow King Nebuchadnezzar to come and take them captive? Because 
they had turned their eyes away from God and they were worshiping false gods. And because of that, their sin had consequences and they were taken away captive. And he's reminding, he's talking to God about it, but the people that are hearing him pray are also being reminded it's this very sin that put us in Babylon for 70 years. And in Ezra's case, 130, because they stayed 60 years longer. And he said, it's this behavior that put us there. It's amazing to me that the very sins that God judged Sodom and Gomorrah for are sins that are being celebrated today. We have, we have months that celebrate the very sins. We're going right back into the place where the righteous judgment of God is coming. Amen. And so his prayer is he's pointing to the fact that this simple behavior is not going to go unnoticed. You've lost sight of the grace of God, that, that God brought us back. We, we committed this sin, we went into captivity, and by his grace, he let us come back to the land of promise, and now we're committing the same sin again that had us taken captive last time. And, and you can just, you can almost, I, you know, like I said, when I study the Bible, I like to put myself in everyone's shoes in the text, Right? And I just imagine being Ezra. He comes back and he thinks, I'm finally out of pagan idolatry land, and now I'm going to be around a bunch of Yahweh worshipers, and we're going to worship God, and we're going to praise God, and I'm going to be in the land of promise. And he comes back, and they're all worshiping idols. And he's like, you've got to be kidding me. And there's a, a righteous heartbreak. And Lord, help. How do I help these people get right with you before we get drug off again? We've been very guilty. He recognized the generally sinful past of the tribes of Israel and their exile was because of these very same sins. You know, they remember very well what trouble their ancestors had gotten into. It was their ancestors' sins again that took them to Babylon. But here they are now committing the exact same thing. It's easy to recognize the sin in others. We need to recognize the sin in our own hearts. Amen. It says in Romans 1, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and righteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness, because what may be known to God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so they are without excuse, because although they know God, they did not glorify him as God. He's telling them in Romans 1, he's saying, these people knew God, but they did not glorify him. And then you see all the sins that come after that. The people that are supposed to know God, and now these are the sins they're participating in. And it's so tragic to see people who've been raised with the truth that have gotten so far from God. Rejecting God as a nation comes with heavy, heavy consequences. This is where you get the list. I won't go through all of it. It says they're filled with unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedience to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of their practice. What he's saying here is these practices are evil. He, goes, he talks about adultery and fornication and homosexuality. And he says, look, it's not just those who participate who are guilty. It's those who condone it. So even if you don't do it, if you say it's okay, you're guilty before God. Guys, we as a nation are guilty of rejecting and forgetting God. We're simply reaping the consequences of those actions. We need to pray for our country. Amen? Then it says in verse 8, 
Continue to look at losing sight of the amazing grace of God. Now, for a little while, grace has been shown from the Lord God, Lord our God to leave us a remnant to escape and to give us a peg in its holy place. And our God may enlighten our eyes and give us a measure of revival in our bondage. He said, look, our God showed us grace. It was our fault we were drug off into captivity. And God, by his grace, has redeemed us. And he's brought us back to the holy land, where it says where he gave us a peg. In those days, they didn't have walls. It was tents. And they would put pegs in the tent poles. And then they would hang things on the tent pole. And a peg meant security. And the peg that was put in Jerusalem was the temple. And they had a place where they could worship. And it was a reminder that God was with them. And they had come back to this place where they could worship the true and living God. And sadly, so many of them, in spite of God's grace and bringing them back to the land of promise and allowing them to worship again, and it's a place where they could be enlightened and grow in their faith, so many of them would not walk with the Lord. He reflects on the amazing goodness of God and bringing a remnant of his people back from exile and allowing them to live in the land of promise. Ezra is saying when he uses that term peg, he's given them something to hang their hat on, if you will. He's given them security in the holy place. And again, what a blessing that here we are back in the land. When it, when it, when it was turned into rubble, they would have thought it was too late. It would never be built again. And now they're back in the land and they're taking it for granted. And the second part says there, and give us a measure of revival in our bondage. Ezra rejoiced to see even a measure of revival, and he knew it was an emblem of God's mercy and favor. When they were in captivity, there were those that were worshiping God even in Babylon. And guys, we may be living in Babylon, and we need to be the ones worshiping God in Babylon. Amen? We need to be the ones worship God in the midst of the world, because there are those who stand with and for the Lord, even when nobody else will. Verse 9, for we were slaves... Yet our God did not forsake us in our bondage, but he extended mercy to us in the sight of the kings of Persia to revive us, to repair the house of our God, to rebuild its ruins, and to give us a wall in Judah and Jerusalem. He's saying, look, look at our God. He's so great. He not only delivered us, but he got them to finance the building of the new temple. And he got them to send back all the things that had been stolen from the temple so they could be used in a temple again. And here's our God. Even though it was our fault we were in bondage, God loved us enough to bring us back. And guys, you can take a million steps away from God. It truly is only one step back. You can, you can backslide, but guys, he's walking with you. He wants you like the prodigal son to turn around and come home. And the only time you see God running in the Bible is the father and the prodigal son. When he sees his son coming, he pulls up, he girds his loins, and he runs to his son. And guys, that's the one time we see God run when, we're, when somebody who's walked away is coming home. Amen? That's our God. He's a gracious God. He's a loving God. He's a merciful God. God protected them while they were in bondage, and then he delivered them back into the land of promise. It's better to be in bondage with the Lord than free without him. And again, the, he talks about a wall there. The wall will be built by Nehemiah, but that's not the wall he's speaking about here. He's talking about the wall of protection. You know, Artaxerxes actually gave Ezra a, a letter. I don't know how well it would have worked, but it basically said... They're traveling on my authority. Don't mess with them. That's the Pastor Dave paraphrase. They're traveling under my authority. Don't mess with them. So if people came along and God protected them from the ambushes along the way, 
5,000 people, including women and children, through the Middle East. God protected them and brought them back to the land of promise. And that's my prayer for people who are wayward, that God would protect them and God would bring them back into fellowship with him. Amen? And that should be our heart and our desire for all who've walked away from the Lord. Verse 10, And now, O our God, what shall we say after this? We have forsaken your commandments. Ezra offered no excuses and not even an explanation. He says, what else can we say? We blew it. When you come before God, does he already know what you did? What's the answer? By the way, people say, why do I need to pray if God already knows what I'm going to pray? So why do I have to pray? Because he already knows what I'm going to say. Right? Let me tell you why we need to pray. Because when we pray, we enter into intimate fellowship with Almighty God. We're hanging out with the King of Kings. He's torn the veil so you can come and sit on his lap, Abba, Father, and you can talk to him. Yeah, we could just think about But no, God wants us. He desires that fellowship with us. Prayer doesn't change God's mind, changes our hearts. And he says, we have forsaken your commandments. In spite of God's mercy and bringing them back, and all that God has done, and now they're being unequally yoked, their fleshly desires uh, are being chosen over faithfulness to God. And when he comes before God, he just confesses his sin. And we don't need to come to God and say, well, Lord, you know, you know I did this, but here's why I did it. No, we just come before the Lord and say, Lord, I blew it. By the way, that's also a good rule of thumb with your spouse. Can I get an amen to that? Well, babe, I'm sorry I did that, but here's why I did it. Because I had... Just stop it. Just come and tell her you're sorry. Amen? Just repent. Don't, don't you know... And that, sadly, that's what happens a lot. People will come to me and want me to pray for them because they're going through something, and they'll give me 47 reasons why they cheated on their wife. So you can give me 47,000. It's sin. Stop it. Quit making excuses. I don't care. I don't care what she did. You responded the wrong way. Amen? And I love Ezra's heart. We have sinned, Lord. What are we going to do about this? We broke your commandments. He's saying, God, how do we fix this mess? We blew it. And notice he keeps saying we. We did it. Even though he didn't do it, he numbered himself amongst his people. Point number five. When you walk with the Lord grows cold, you walk in open rebellion against what the Word of God clearly commands and then you're surprised by the consequences. Look what happens in verse 11. Which, which you commanded by your servants, the prophets. So we've broken the commandment. What commandments? The ones you commanded by your servants, the prophets, saying the land which you're entering is, possessed an un, is an unclean land with the uncleanness of the peoples of the lands, with their abominations, their worships of false gods, which have filled it from one end to another end with impurity. Saying, look, you're going into the land. This is when they originally entered into the land of promise. And he said, you're going into a land which is filled with uncleanness from one end of the land to the other. So you're going to be surrounded by ungodliness. So if God allows us to be surrounded by ungodliness, he knows he can give us the strength to walk godly in the midst of ungodliness. Amen? Now look what happens in verse 12. It says, now therefore, do not give your daughters as wives for their sons, nor take their daughters to your sons and never seek their peace or prosperity that you may be strong and eat of the good of the land and leave it as an inheritance to your children forever. Now what's interesting, he says, never seek peace and prosperity with the world. Don't seek to earn favor with the world so that you get rich with the things of the world. Don't seek your peace from the world. Don't seek prosperity with the world. You know, the real riches are the ones that will outlast this life. All that we're accumulating here and now, be, work hard, provide for your family, all that's true. 
but it's all wood, hay, and stubble. It's all going to burn. It's all chaff. We're fighting over deck chairs in the Titanic. Amen? We're trying to, to, to acquire things that are all going to pass away. And the real riches are the, is the relationship with the Lord. It's the, being used for the kingdom of God. It's sharing the gospel with others. It's living a life that brings glory and honor to the name of our Savior. And he said, look, the kings open, uh, often sought strength and peace through marriages to their enemies. And if God's people do so, it makes them weak. When, you, when you're joined with an unbeliever, it's going to weaken your marriage. By the way, you cannot, an unbeliever cannot have agape love. They cannot. Because the Bible says in, first, uh, in Galatians 5.22, the fruit of the Holy Spirit is agape. Agape gives. The world can't have agape because the world doesn't have the Holy Spirit. So when a believer and an unbeliever get married, this one can have agape, this one can't. So the best they can give you is phileo love, or storge love. It's a, but it's not the supernatural love that comes from the Holy Spirit. So you're unequally yoked. Their priorities, their passions are different. They want the things of the world. They, they don't have the Holy Spirit living inside of them. And again, if you're in that situation now, stay and pray. Don't bail out, work it out. Can I get amen to that? God wants you to stay and pray for your spouse when you want to see them saved. But if you're not married yet, it's better to be single than married to the wrong person. Amen? And the exhortation here is, look, you're going to be in an impure world. Don't, don't, don't be linked to them. Don't be yoked together with the world. Minister to the world, but have no fellowship with it. Peace with the world is enmity to God, and you cannot serve two masters. Choose one. Verse 13, we're almost done. And after all, it has come upon us, our evil deeds, and for our great guilt, since you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserve and have given us such deliverance as this. Here's what he says is, Lord, not only were you guilty, and yes, you punished us, but you didn't give us the punishment we deserve. And you know what? Boy, are there, are there, are there more true words than that? No matter how much consequences my sin has had in my life, God has not punished me equivalent to what I deserve. Amen? And the next time you say, well, I don't deserve that. I don't think you want what you deserve. Amen? What do we all deserve? Hellfire. I don't deserve that. I don't want what I deserve. I want grace. Can I get an amen to that? And what he's saying to him, I mean, I love Ezra. He's like, yeah, it's, we, we blew it. We broke the commandments. There's no excuse. Lord, it was our fault. We did wrong. And by the way, yeah, you punished us. It wasn't enough. You didn't pun By the way, my dad used to swap me with a belt. He didn't swap me as many times as I deserved to be swatted. Amen? Amen. Every guy in the room is like, word. Because reality is, you know, I got swatted, and there's probably a few times he shouldn't have swatted me. But you know what? It was probably about 50 times he should have, and he didn't. So I think I came out ahead. But the point is, he's saying, look, yeah, you put us in bondage for 70 years in Babylon but you brought us back out. And even though you punished us, it wasn't equivalent to what we really deserve because we worshiped false gods. We turned our back on you. Our God's a God of love and grace and mercy. They're, they, they're losing sight of the grace of God and the mercy of God and the love of God. And they're continuing to go back to the very same things. You know, God's mercy, you know, God hasn't given us what we deserve. It says in Psalm 103, he has not dealt with us according to our sins nor punished us 
according to our iniquities. No matter how heavy God's divine discipline is, it's far less than we deserve. Last two verses, verse 14. Should we again break your commandments and join in marriage with people committing these abominations? Would you not be angry with us until you had consumed us so that we would be no remnant or survivor? He's like, Lord, you didn't punish us the way we deserved. You showed us grace, and we came back, and we're doing the same thing again. And Lord, he's saying, shouldn't you just wipe us out? Paraphrase. Then of that, he said, there'd be no one left. Your anger would be just if you poured it out upon us. And yet he's crying out to the Lord. Praise the Lord for the fact that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He doesn't die for us because we're good. He dies for us because he's good. You know, true repentance goes beyond asking for forgiveness when the consequences are heavy. It's amazing to me how often people fess up when they get caught. That's not repentance. You got caught, and then you go, oh yeah, it's my fault. Wait a minute, where were you before you got caught? True repentance is when you know what you're doing is wrong and you surrender your life back to the Lord and you seek His forgiveness. Final point, you cease to be humble, broken, and desperate before the Lord. Look at verse 15. O Lord God of Israel, you are righteous, for we are left as a remnant as it is to this day. Here we are before you in our guilt though no one can stand before you because of this. Now, this is the example of someone who is humble, broken, and desperate. Here's Ezra. Let me read that again as we close. O Lord God of Israel. First of all, when you pray, the first thing you need to do is address the one you're praying to and remember who you're praying to. Amen? He's not praying to Baal. He's not praying to the false idols that some of the priests are married to. He's praying to the true and living God. And then he says, you are righteous. You know, you hear me pray all the time. And when I pray, I often begin with, you're the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the Alpha and Omega, almighty, all-knowing, all-powerful God. Guys, when you begin with praise, it, it makes everything else you're praying for simple because of the greatness of the God that you're praying to. Amen? And it's, it helps you understand that whatever I'm, see, whatever I'm calling out to, he's greater than that. And be reminded. And he's saying, you know, you are righteous. Even though we deserve it, you're righteous, Lord. For we are left as a remnant, only because of God's grace, to this day, and here we are before you, we're still guilty. So no one can stand before you because of this. Because we're worshiping false gods, we can't even stand before you, Lord. But he's crying out to God in a place of humility and brokenness. And you know what? He's crying out when almost nobody else is. There's a small group that's praying with him, but most are off living their life. Guys, we should not be... By the way, it's been said, you can find out who loves God by who comes on Sunday... You can find out who, or no, you can find out who loves the church by who comes on Sunday. You can find out who likes the pastor who comes to midweek, and you find out who loves Jesus by who comes to prayer meeting. And what's the most unattended thing in most churches? What is it? The prayer meetings. We have prayer before at nine o'clock on Sundays. There's three people in there, right? Well, nine o'clock's my only day to sleep in. I'm glad Jesus was willing to hang on the cross for you instead of sleeping in. Can I get an amen to that? Priorities, right? So. When your walk with the Lord grows cold, you listen more to the culture. You're more concerned about being popular with men than faithful to God. These, these pagan leaders, were, I mean, these 
priests and leaders were, were marrying pagan women. Why were they doing that? Because they were going with the flow of what everybody else was doing. Well, that, that, that leader did it. That Levite did it. I can do it. Guys, we don't follow men. We follow the world. You become desensitized to sin. My prayer is we get resensitized to sin. That we, we, that, we, that we start seeing sin for what it is, and we hate it as much as God hates it. Number three, your prayer life and intimate fellowship with God are all but non-existent. I want to encourage you, as your devotions go, as your prayer life goes, so your walk will go. Amen? It's hard to grow in, in relationship with... Do you grow if you don't eat, or do you starve? And we desire the Word of God more than our necessary food. Amen? Number, number four, you lose sight of the amazing grace of God and His mercy in the midst of the consequences of your past sin. We need to recognize the grace of God and the mercy of God. Guys, all of us have been, give, been forgiven way more than we deserve, amen? And we must never lose sight of that. You walk in open rebellion against the Word. Guys, what the Word of God says, they're not the ten suggestions or the ten opinions or the ten commandments, Amen. And when God says it, that settles it. And I don't care what anybody else says. I don't care what any other church is doing. I don't care what your Christian friends are doing. Our standard, my standard, your standard is the word of God and nothing else. Amen? And then finally, uh, may we not cease to be humble, broken, and desperate before God. Lord, we love you. We praise you. We thank you for your love and your grace and your infinite mercy. And Lord, I pray that we would be as sensitive as Ezra that when we see others sinning, that we would intercede on their behalf, that our heart would be broken by sin, not desensitized to it, that, Lord, we would intercede on behalf of a lost and a dying world, and that we would be unashamed of the gospel, that, Lord, we would cry out to you in a crowd of people, that we would stand for you when nobody else will, and that we would intercede for people that nobody else is praying for. Lord, keep us humble, keep us broken, keep us desperate, keep us on fire for you. May we not grow cold in our walk. Lord, we ask all these things in your holy and your precious name we pray and all God's people said.